0: What we're going to do in today's today's session is we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and biblical eschatology, and uh, uh, this will be, I would say, content-wise. I'm talking about theology content-wise. This will be as significant a a session as we'll have for the entire period. Because what this does is give you, if we want to talk Velts here for a second, this gives you the theological background so that your second text is congruent with what the biblical writers are assuming. So this is essentially Addendum 11b um, on. Uh, Kingdom of God and biblical eschatology, and I'm going to review some of this material and then get on to some illustrations and applications. So let's start out with the notion that uh, with the the uh, Kingdom of God, and this is the first important point, is essentially a dynamic concept, not a static concept. This is kind of difficult for us. Kingdom means God's active reign and rule, not statically and spatially God's realm. So, you know, if you and I talk about the kingdom of Queen Elizabeth, we're thinking of area. When the Bible talks about this, Malkuth Yahweh or Basiliah Tuthayu, it's talking about God's reign and active rule. And so the basic idea, of course, that starts out from the Old Testament, is that God, Yahweh, is ruler over all, right from Genesis 1-1 to the selection of the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 7, and so forth. But the passage that I think is the most interesting in this is Judges 8, 22-23, where after Gideon rescues the people, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Even you reign over us, also your sons and your sons' sons, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, and now this quote, I I think could be said to be sort of the theme of the Old Testament. This quote, I will not reign over you, and my sons will not reign over you. Yahweh, the Lord, will reign over you. That's the basic idea. So this is why in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's not real excited about the idea of having a king because it sort of dilutes the notion of Yahweh having the reign and rule over the people of God. And indeed, when they get a king, you see this in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, they still use the following phraseology. The kingdom kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David. So in other words, yeah, they're king, but they're really sort of taking in hand for him the reign and rule of Yahweh. Now, of course, you know things go from kind of bad to worse. The people are taken off into exile. And here's kind of the first of the important issues then, is that after this... um, uh, kingdom of the kings is dashed there is this prophetic hope that yahweh will at some time in the future arise and put things right now essentially this comes out in two ways the first that i would like to call sort of god's historical actions that is to say In history, and using means like armies and so forth. So God brings in, against his own people in Amos, he brings in the Assyrians. And against his people in Judah, we see this in Jeremiah, he brings in the Babylonians in judgment on his people. Then they're taken off into exile, but now comes the hope of God's, and I'm going to put this up here, visitation, which is kind of a big term. Um, So you get here, pakad in Hebrew and in Greek, episkeptomai. God coming to visit his people. Well, Amos, you know, talks about God's visitation being in wrath but there's also visitation in salvation. Now, what I want to do is just read for everybody here, uh, Jeremiah thirty, uh, no, 29, Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. And this, this kind of gets all these themes together. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Now, there's that term, pakad, And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, here, this next passage is a passage you all know. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, and so forth. Now, this is a visitation or a day of the Lord that is, I'm using this term now, historical because, for example, you have... uh, cyrus freeing the people even the visitation in judgment that occurs first is with the armies coming in and so forth but standing behind that visitation of God first in judgment and then of course in grace and rescue is the final visitation by God, sort of looming up behind this, this incredible final visitation, and thus you get the term eschatological from eschatus, the last visitation of God. When he will finally... Again, judgment and grace, okay? Finally, bring judgment on all evil everywhere, and finally put things right everywhere, uh, in all ways for his people and for all peoples. Now, this, um, this final eschatological visitation is always seen in terms that are much bigger than the historical one. And you can see it in some places in the Old Testament, and I think it's worth noting here, the following chapters are pretty much oriented specifically to this final eschatological visitation. And that is Isaiah 24 to 27, Isaiah 34 and 35, and Zephaniah 1 and Zephaniah 3. Uh, If you look up on the board, A term like day of the Lord and visitation is used for both of these. And that has hermeneutical implications because you can see that the final visitation and that historical one with the armies and stuff like that are actually related to one another as the vocabulary relates them. I'll come back to that point. Now, in this Final visitation of God, this eschatological visitation of God, there are going to be, and I've laid out for you at least, I think there are more, but at least 12 characteristics two of judgment and ten of grace. So the first is that wicked men everywhere will be under the judgment of God. And you see this in uh, Isaiah chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. They have uh, transgressed the laws, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants uh, suffer for their guilt Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. Now, this is that kind of talk is a way bigger deal than the talk about the armies coming in and taking people away and so on like this. Uh, this is sort of like napalm bombing the earth or something like that. Which is like the second point, which is that creation itself will undergo undergo great convulsing. But listen to this from Isaiah 24. Behold, the Lord will lay waste the earth and make it desolate. The earth shall be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled. Uh, That's verses 1 and 4. 19 to 20. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. So you have this incredible... Thoroughgoing judgment, but then a whole bunch of factors of positive grace. Let me just run through those real quickly. You've taken a look at those uh, yourself. But number one, and in many ways, the biggest one, God himself would be personally present. God himself would be personally present. So, uh, you see this in Zephaniah 3, Ezekiel 34, a bunch of passages like that. Then, number two, creation would be restored. And here I've got to quote my favorite passage, Isaiah 35, 4 to 6. Say to those uh, of a feeble uh, heart and of a faint heart, strengthen the feeble knees, make strong the feeble hands. Say to those in Zion, Behold, your Lord comes, he comes with recompense, he will come to save. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. So the creation, including the, you know, the physical bodies of the people are going to be restored at this eschatological time. Notice the passage I picked out from Isaiah 35. I'll put this up here. Isaiah 24 to 27, 34 to 35, and Zephaniah 1 and 3, as being ones that are kind of clearly oriented that way. All right, next. There would be resurrection of the dead. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, your bodies shall their bodies shall rise, O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Number four. The Spirit would be poured out. You know the passage from Joel. It will happen afterward that I will, de- that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your young man shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. Forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, where God talks about making a new covenant with the people. And he says here, um, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Number six, the people themselves would be changed. They'd be given a new heart. This Zephaniah 3 passage is very good for this, where he talks about how the people will be humble and lowly. Uh, Zephaniah 3:11 uh, and following. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no wrong and utter no lies, and so forth. All right, number seven, David will rule again. It says in Hosea 3, 5, that afterward, David, uh, that David would rule once again. Number eight, and a really critical and interesting one, is that the people would return to their land. Now, this is in uh, talk of eschatological visitation, that the people would return to their land. I'm going to pick up here. Isaiah 11, 11 and 12, and listen to this. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant which is left of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Ethiopia, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And then the Gentiles would come, like in Isaiah 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord being raised up and all the Gentiles will flow into it. And finally, peace, and you know that saying that's on the side of the United Nations about beating swords into plowshares and so on like that. Now, that's the vision of the final, the eschatological visitation, which, by the way, often not only is called Day of the Lord, but phrases like, afterward will also be used for that. All right, first key point now for the lecture today. The announcement by John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the announcement that the eschatological visitation of God is about to take place. Not just some good stuff from God, but that the reign and rule of God himself was going to take place. Now there are, and I'd like you to note at least three really critical passages here. The first is Matthew twelve twenty-eight. And this is Jesus himself talking. So I've got, uh, I've got uh, sort of three different kinds of witnesses here. Uh, where Jesus says, if by the spirit of God I am throwing out the demons, Ara, then, therefore, Efhumas, He, then the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God has come upon you. Now, that's Matthew 12:28. Next passage, Luke 7:16. When Jesus raises the young man at Nain, the people say, and we've talked about this passage before, a great prophet has arisen among us. But all the while I was telling you guys that passage, I was withholding the second part of the verse. Because the people also say God has visited his people. What was that? Ep, eskepsita? Yes. This word right here. God has visited his people at the resurrection of the young man. And then thirdly, and I'd like you all to take a look in your Greek New Testaments, the best sneaky good passage in the whole Bible. And it is 1 Corinthians 10, 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And this is Paul kind of making a sort of a casual observation here, which turns out to be really significant. And Paul says, he's talking about how the people came out of Egypt and were led by Moses through the desert and through the sea and had the rock following them and all the rest. Then in 11 he says, these things, typical, typologically, were happening to them, but were written down for our admonition, Nuthesion. Now, it's the last part of this that's critical. Uh, our admonition, upon whom, ta tele, the ends of the ages. The ends of the ages have already come. That's a perfect tense here. The ends of the ages have already come, and if it's a perfect tense, it means, and are now here. So, that was, let me put this up here. 1 Corinthians 10.11. So we've got the assertion from Jesus himself that the kingdom of God is present. We have the people's witnesses that God has visited his people. And we've got St. Paul's testimony that the age to come is already here. This now brings us to the most important part of this lecture. How are you to understand that? What does that mean that the ends of the ages, the eschatological visitation of God, actually occurred in Jesus Christ? In general, the New Testament has three ways of viewing this. And that's what we're going to talk about. The first way is so-called... Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. And this is essentially the way that we find it in the Synoptic Gospels and Acts. And essentially what this view says is that if you take a look at those 12 items that I gave you of what was going to happen in Judgment and Grace at the last time, and you compare them to Christ's ministry, you're going to see every single one of those fulfilled. Let's go through them briefly. Number one, that God himself is with us. Well, what's Jesus' name? Emmanuel. God with us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Number two, I'm going to do the grace characteristics first, and then we'll switch to the the, uh, uh, judgment ones. Number two, Creation was restored. First Corinthians ten eleven is the best sneaky good passage. This is the best good passage. Obvious, the best obvious good passage. Matthew eleven two to six. The disciples of John the Baptist say, "Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another?" And what does Jesus say? Go tell John what you see in here. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The deaf hear. Lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Look at those things. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Look at Isaiah 35, 4-6. to Look at Isaiah 26, 19. Those are all of the items that are mentioned by Isaiah of what was to happen at the end of days. Okay? How about... Uh, uh, the dead being raised. Well, jairus's daughter, the young man at Nain, Lazarus, Jesus Himself. The Spirit being poured out. You know, everybody's going to know that that's Pentecost. But do you realize if you take a look at Acts six, uh, Acts two, verse sixteen, and take a look at this, please, in Acts chapter two. He says in verse 16, Peter now, in his speech, This is, tuta estin, this is that spoken by the prophet Joel, and it will be in the last days, says the Lord. So it's the testimony that this is the eschatological fulfillment. By the way, the Joel passage uses afterward, ahare. And Peter changes that to the more obvious and easy to understand in the last days. Next. God's people were changed. Remember how people were going to be changed? God's people were changed as he characterizes them on the Sermon on the Mount. Or take something like Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the way he is actually changed. And changed not only in his heart, but in his action. Did David rule again? Yeah. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in the entry to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 1, that he will sit on the throne of his father, David. Forgiveness of sins. Was forgiveness of sins truly dispensed? Think of the man who came through the roof, the paralytic man. Jesus says, my son, be of good cheer. Your sins are actually forgiven. And, the Jewish leaders say, Harumph! Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly! Exactly! And that's why it was so offensive. Next. God's people were gathered from the ends of the earth. Really? Really? I thought that was only in the realm of the dispensational millennialists. Oh, yeah? Well, take a look sometime at Acts chapter 2. We put this up here. There's a little map of all the places. You know how the people say, we heard them speaking in our own tongues. Cretans, Arabians, you know, people from Mesopotamia. They name all of those people. Here's a map of where all that is. Now, I would like to invite you to consider... What I read to you from Isaiah 11, 11 and 12, where we talked about he, uh, God says, I will, uh, the remnant which is left of his people from Assyria, so that's going to be up here, from Egypt, right down here, from Pathros, which is upper Egypt here, from Ethiopia, also from this area, from Elam, Right here, you can see Elam being mentioned. From Shinar, which is Babylonia, right here. From Hamath, which is Syria, right here. And the coastlands of the sea are commonly agreed to be uh, the area of Libya and Cyrene. Well, not only did they come from all those places that Isaiah talked about, but even further, all the way to Crete, and Rome and Cappadocia and Bithynia, and uh, 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 not Bithynia, but Cappadocia and other places that are mentioned there as well. The Gentiles, of course, came to our Lord throughout his ministry, and peace, that was our 10th positive, is the watchword of the kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers, and Jesus telling Peter, put up your sword, and so forth. Now, on the judgment side, this is harder to show, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. That's why I reversed my diagram. But on the judgment side, you have God arising against sinful men, at the resurrection, when the guards fall into the dust, as the angel comes down uh, uh, angels come down for the tomb. And creation itself was wrenched at the crucifixion. As the sun grew dark and as the earthquake shook and the bodies of the saints came out. Now, here's kind of the critical point at at this juncture. How do you understand this though? Look. The dead were raised, but not all the dead were raised. The blind were healed, but not all the blind were healed. The widow's son was raised from the dead at Nain, but there were other widows who had kids died. Jesus healed some lepers, but there were plenty other lepers around. So this Christus Victor model says that here's how you have to understand it. That the promises of the eschatological reign and rule of God are fulfilled in principle, but they are not fulfilled without remainder. That is to say, they are f- fulfilled in their essence, but they are not fulfilled so exhaustively that there isn't more to do. The great analogy that was used for this was invented, so to speak, by a Lutheran theologian who died really not so long ago, Oscar Kuhlman from the University of Basel, who compared the coming of Christ to D-Day. And he said that just like in D-Day, when Rommel, who wasn't in North Africa at the time, but in 44 he was in France, when, when he heard June 6, 1944, the Allies hit the beaches of Normandy, when on June 7, 1944, they are not rolled back into the sea, he said, now we have lost the war. Now, there were still plenty of battles ahead like the Battle of the Bulge in December of 44 but really the die had been cast another analogy from the other theater midway before midway the allies never won after midway the allies never lost they sustained tremendous casualties but they never lost and now the beauty of these World War II analogies is this You now understand what the parousia, the second coming of Christ, is. It's like the dropping of the atomic bomb. So, if you have midway where the die is cast, finally the weapons are taken away from the enemies of God's people at the final coming at the parousia. Like the fact that two days after the dropping of the second bomb at Nagasaki, the uh, Japanese Empire surrendered. Now, here's another analogy that I have developed for this. It's like this Nicole is your wife, right? All right? Does Nicole like chocolates? Every woman likes chocolates. Okay, that was an easy question. Now, supposing you say, as your fifth anniversary is coming up, you say, okay, Nicole, <clears throat> I am going to get you a whole truckload of chocolates of all different kinds and it's coming on the weekend and you can just have these to your heart's content she is looking forward to this and you tell her that on Tuesday on Thursday there's a ring of the doorbell ding dong special delivery And what is delivered? A Whitman sampler, which contains one of each of the kinds of chocolates that she is going to get. Pass it around. Now, you see. This ain't just a picture of the load of chocolates. It's actually a foretaste of the load of chocolates. It's not just a lick and a promise. It's the real thing. So essentially, what you have is you have a foretaste. Now, let me tell you. St. Paul is perfectly aware of this, and he has at least three ways of expressing this truth. Number one, first fruits, ap arche. He says that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. In, second, in 1 Thessalonians, he says that the Christians are the first fruits. Here's the second way. St. Paul talks about the arabun, the down payment of the spirit. Now, I, I want you guys to think about this, how good this actually is. First fruits. Is the first fruit, Andy, part of the harvest? Yeah, it's part of the harvest. I mean, it's actual grain from the harvest, but it ain't the whole harvest. There's more to come. Down payment. Is it part of the payment? Sure it's part of the payment. You know what, you have to pay less, right? But you've got to make more payments. So it's part of it with a promise of more to come. And here's St. Paul's third, uh, third way of talking about it, sons and heirs. If you are sons, you've already got something. If you're heirs, there's more to come. <clears throat> now, this coming then, this Coming into history is a kind of down payment. So we call it a proleptic coming. Here is the end. It has come ahead of time in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and Pentecost. So we would say, if you're going to speak the kind of velts mumbo-jumbo here, you would say the eschatological visitation of God came proleptically in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and Pentecost. The eschatological visitation came proleptically, ahead of time in history. Now, the thing that's incredible about this is... That, as a matter of fact, this is actually said in the Gospels. In Matthew 8, 29, the demons say to Jesus, Have you come, look what I'm going to put up here, Have you come (coughs) pro-kairu, ahead of the appointed time? Well, of course they're asking that. Because when the people are freed from all illnesses and death and so on like that, that's the eschatological time. It's happening, but it's not happening without remainder. So they ask, Have you come pro Kairu ahead of time? Of course, the answer is yes. Yes. It has come ahead of time. Now, Here's the second way the New Testament understands the proleptic coming of the kingdom of God. It's what is generally the Johannine view. And that is hidden reality. So, the reign and rule of God has come in Jesus Christ. Not in principle... John would say, but completely, except you can't see it. It's hidden. Thus, in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, The one who believes in me has already passed from death to life. Okay? Bebe Has already passed, and so he's now through it. Now, you know this passage from the famous Mary and Martha and Jesus the interaction jesus says concerning the dead lazarus he who lives and believes in me shall never die that's this perspective so you also get uh, this in in john nine with the healing of the blind man and jesus starts talking like this i came that those who see may become blind and that those who are blind may see. Now, he's not talking about going around putting stakes through people's eyes that they might become blind, right? This is all about spiritual blindness and about uh, spiritual sight. Thus, but of course, the coming is proleptic, it's ahead of time in history, but you have to now view it like this. So the Johannine view goes as follows. John says that there are signs. Signs. Why does he use that word signs? Cause it's showing something you can't see otherwise. You might say that it for John it's sort of like if you think of like this. You think you go out in the Pacific and there are some atolls and you have little islands and so on. They're really mountain ranges with the tops sticking up. I mean around Australia and so on, you'd have all that with the reefs and everything. <clears throat> so, he's saying that these things that Jesus did were signs because they were clues to this greater reality that's under here, but which cannot be seen. Now, this is essentially, I would say, this is essentially the way we view worship. And there's this footnote in the text here that I'd point you to, on, uh, <clears throat> here on page 254. This is a great quote here from Nikas Nisiotis. Worship is the place and time prepared in this world for the abiding of eternity and the Divine Presence. It is therefore a foretaste of the meta-historical, the post-historical future, by historical elements grounded in the historical incarnation of Jesus. We must consequently understand the symbolism of worship from this standpoint. Icons and liturgical gestures and actions are a legitimate use of nature which, in an eschatological perspective, is already restored. Now now listen to this next part. This is great. None of these symbolic elements is an end in itself. Matter and colors and movements and the set forms of an ecclesiastical life are transparent facades set forth in, si- in the front of the eyes of the faithful, by which to look through to the hidden spiritual realities of the celestial world that's this johannine view so in other words when, when the pastor wears white it is a revelation of what you cannot see namely the restoration of the new humanity thus you put white on a baby when he's baptized and so forth and we say what do we say With angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud Well, where's that? You can't see that. We are already participating in the final Eucharistic feast. Ahead of time, but you can't see it. Now, this viewpoint, the parousia, has a different description. It's not the dropping of the atomic bomb. It is the taking the mask off at midnight at the mask ball. It is the revelation of what actually is. It is the full taking away of the covering so that you can see reality for what it truly is. Now, I want you guys to notice, would everybody just take a look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 8, and you're going to see both of these ideas next to one another. In Romans eight, eighteen and following, and you know this passage, for I reckon that the uh, sufferings of the now time are not worthy compared to the, listen how this is. Let me put this up. They are not worthy compared to the gonna be glory, gonna be revealed glory. For the eager expectation of the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of God. See that talk? It's revelatory talk that's this model revelatory talk you go on to verses 20 and following and now you have the Christus Victor talk what does Paul say for to futility the creation was subjective not willingly but a con account of the one who subjected it with reference to hope because the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay for the liberty of the glory of the children of God. And he talks about groaning inwardly. Ah, whole different kind of talk now. Now the talk is release, being set free from the bondage to decay. See how it's a different model? Revelational model is one. Bondage model, Christus Victor model is something else. Alright, now, the third model, and in many ways the most profound, is the one where everything is fulfilled in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in himself. In himself. Not working with other people, but in himself. So, obviously, some of the stuff is, is apparent. Jesus is God himself. Well, He exhibits creation perfectly restored at his resurrection. At his resurrection. He also, Mark 13. he's with the wild beasts and they do not harm him. He himself is raised from the dead, number four. Hey, did you ever think of this? Uh, That was number three, number four. How about pouring out the spirit? He himself gets the spirit poured out on him at his baptism in Matthew 3, Mark 1. Luke 3. Number five, he is the perfect Israelite, perfectly carrying out the vision of the Beatitudes. He himself is great David's greater son. Forgiveness of sins took place on the cross. What does John say in John 1? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 129. What about that business of people returning to the land? He goes down to Egypt, then he comes back again, just like one of the promises is that the people are going to come back from Egypt. The Magi, the Greeks, the centurion come to him, and he exhibits peace perfectly. And then, of course, on the judgment side, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Judgment on humanity, and there is the rending of the rocks and all that, and the darkening of the sky as he himself is crucified. So let me put, put it up this way. So our third thing, which is essentially a Pauline model this one here is Johanni is this. Everything is fulfilled and in Christ. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. He came proleptically ahead of time. So we still got that proleptic thing. But now, everything is fulfilled in him without remainder. So now, he's walking through walls and doors and stuff like that. Nothing can happen to him. He does not die again. He has perfect, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. There's absolute restoration of all things in Christ. So you have this notion of something like our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 2. And now what's the idea here? Now we as people, watch how I'm going to do this, we as people are now to be united with him so that as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See? So you are baptized into Christ. You are now one with him. In him, all the promises, in him personally, all the promises are fulfilled without remainder. And now everything of outside of Christ is the old creation. Everything inside of Christ is the new creation Now, it is absolutely critical folks to realize that all three of these models occur throughout the New Testament and you may encounter them at any given time I already showed you this in Romans 8 18 and 19 is the revelatory model the revealing of the sons of God 20 to 24 is the Christus Victor model being set free from the bondage to decay for the second coming so this has guys this has tremendous ramifications for at least three things for you number one for your interpretation of the scriptures That is to say, realize that you have different antinomous models. This is kind of like we talked about with the view of light, with waves and particles as antinomous. These aren't exactly harmonizable. And so sometimes, when you're interpreting, you're going to get a passage that'll be about, let's say, the healing of a blind man, and it's Christus Victor. So therefore it is about the restoration of creation. But if you're in John 9 the healing of the blind man is a sign about the hidden reality. See? So you got to make sure you're getting the right thing out of the right lesson. Secondly, this impacts your preaching. Because when you're actually preaching a text, my recommendation is Go with the flow. Don't fight the text. So, I don't want to be hearing from you here, Buzz, uh, some kind of a sermon out of the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, and here's the Buzz interpretation of it. Jesus, When we come to faith, Jesus has us use our hands so that they can, um, uh, what would you say, uh, touch his word or something like that. I mean, this is not about... Uh this is or, or you heal a blind man from the Synoptic Gospels and suddenly we can see the truths of God. See? That's that's sort of Johannine kind of talk. That's not that's not the Synoptic Gospels. When Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, this is the restoration of creation. This is now the new creation invading ahead of time into our fallen world. And it's not a clue to another hidden spiritual reality. Third. I can tell you this from experience, guys. You have no idea how practical this is in terms of pastoral ministry. Now we've got a couple of guests here today and they are graduates of the Fort Wayne Seminary. When I taught there, this happened in 1984. I Coach soccer, like I have here, and I had one of my soccer players call me up one night, and he said, "Coach, Mary Joe's just given birth to a baby, and and it's just awful. A uh, baby's head's all split open, and we don't think it's going to live. Uh, come down to Parkview Hospital." So I'm driving in the car, and you're thinking, you know, what are you going to say? Folks, this is Christus Victor time. This is Satan, death, and the devil doing really well against God's creation. I got there, I saw a Polaroid picture of the baby, looked all disfigured, it died a few days later, the chaplain there had baptized it, and what kind of a... What kind of a prayer do you have? You have a Christus Victor prayer, guys, about how this creation is broken and under the curse of sin, groaning in travail, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And on that last day, that baby will be fully restored. This is not a kind of good thing and a blessing or something like that. But now you have a girl who comes in And wants to confess that she has had an affair. And she's repentant. But she's burdened with guilt. Hey, this is not the time to be talking about wrestle with the evil or something like that. No, 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 no. no. This is probably going to be a hidden reality thing where you can talk about forgiveness of sins and that even now you are already forgiven and holy before God. It's not time to talk about the brokenness of the old creation and wrestling with this problem and so on like that. But, she as a baptized and confessing child of God who has baptized into Christ and has put on Christ has his full righteousness. It's a whole different approach and it's a perfectly right approach given the multiplicity of approaches that we see in the New Testament of these these three antinomous approaches and ways in which we try to understand what it means that the eschatological reign and rule of God has come into our world in fulfillment and yet in some way with remainder. Okay? Now, we're almost at the end of time. Let me just say here, in my view, the Old Testament works exactly the same way. Except it's a little more complicated. Here's the end. Here's Christ. End has come proleptically ahead of time into history. Old Testament is another prolepsis of the end of time. I mean, there's, there are some features where you draw a little dotted line like that, too, but this is basically it. But it's sort of a two-dimensional version. It's a two-dimensional version. God works through means, kind of, in the Old Testament. Armies come in, and so forth. Now, you guys are passing around the Whitman sampler. Inside the sampler, in the box, you have a diagram of the chocolates. See? And, if Meyer didn't eat them all back there, there's actually some, uh, uh, some little papers left with a little bit of crumbs in them. That's the way the Old Testament is. It is essentially a pictorial of what's coming. You can see the shape of it in the papers. A little bit of a taste. Elijah raises the widow's son, okay? So you see a little bit. But it is not essentially... What happens when God himself stands among his people and raises people from the dead and forgives? So, you have what do you have in the Old Testament? Forgiveness through the blood of sheep and goats. What do you have in the New Testament? Forgiveness with the blood of Jesus Christ. You have the perfection of humanity. Where in the Old Testament? Well, in the fact that the priests had to be perfect. No crushed hands and missing feet and stuff like that. But in the New Testament, we have Christ risen from the dead. So, uh, we can pick it up from there, guys. We've uh, gone a little bit long. Um, I've, got, um, I've got an assignment sheet to hand out for the rest of the quarter for you. And um, uh, you'll see what we have for next time, but we'll draw it to, uh, to a close for right here.